0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. When our field loses someone of great significance, what's our role in preserving their legacy? What can we do to remember them, honor them, and see their work and their ideas carried forward? Today, Dr. Marjan Farid and I will dig into just that. We talk about the late Dr. Roger Steinert, an icon in the field of ophthalmology who passed away last year. Marjan is on the faculty at UC Irvine and trained under Dr. Steinert as a resident and as a fellow. She speaks to us about the valuable lessons she learned from watching him work, his unique ability to solve problems that no one else could, and how she tries to emulate him in her daily interactions with patients. Coming up on Off the Grid.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Brynmar Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with another episode of Ophthalmology Off The Grid, and today I am joined by none other than the tremendous corneal surgeon, Dr. Marjan Farid. Uh, Marjan is uh, at, the, at UC Irvine and is a, um, was a trainee under Dr. Roger Steinert, uh, both as a resident and as a fellow. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about carrying on a legacy, passing the torch. What is it like to carry on um, after someone so important is gone? And uh, how do we honor someone like Dr. Steinert uh, for all the years of work that he did uh, by sort of carrying the, uh, the baton after his passing? So Marjan, thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, welcome to the program.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here talking to you and especially to be talking about Roger Steinert, who is my champion. So um, I'm excited.
1: Tell me a little bit about maybe the first time you met Dr. Steinert. Um, what that was like.
2: Perfect. So I actually did my residency training at UC Irvine and uh, started my residency training in 2003. That same year when I was a first resident is when Roger Steiner moved from Boston to Irvine and joined our faculty. So we sort of started there almost at the same time. You know, I was a first year resident. So at that time, I was trying to figure out how to use a uh, you know, a a microscope and everything was very, very basic. And, uh, you know, so I I watched Dr. Steiner in his work and with him building his practice Um, as a senior resident. I got to operate with him, learn cataract surgery from him, basic uh, cataract surgery. So that was phenomenal. I had a copy of his book and now I had the real thing sitting next to me. And it was an amazing experience. Um, I was thinking at that point of just going into private practice following tr- residency. And uh, I remember him speaking to me and really urging me to uh, continue my training and uh, to continue in the field of cornea. And so I did. So I selected a few a handful of fellowships um, in Southern California. I didn't want to move and apply to those. And, uh, you know, I, I ranked Roger Steiner number one, I wasn't sure if he would rank me because I was, you know, I had already been there. And, and most people uh, don't necessarily choose their own residence, but uh, I matched with with him. So he had ranked me number one, and I had ranked him number one. And it was sort of a match made in heaven for me anyways, because that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And being able to really train with him one-on-one as a fellow is a a unique relationship. Because a fellow and a mentor are often spending more time together than we do with our families. We're at work side-by-side every day into the evenings, you know, OR, sharing all of the work together. And you get to learn so much from your mentor and so much about him and you know some of the most amazing things that I took from that year was learning how to think really because uh, you know that's so important in one what we do we see patients in front of us and it's not just about sort of going to the textbook and pulling on uh, you know the rigid things that we know but really learning to think outside of the box And I remember him sitting and sort of in front of the patient, putting his hand to his head and just sort of thinking and thinking outside the box and things that he would come up with just amazing, uh, where nobody could figure out what's wrong with this patient, you know, uh, who had had previous LASIK and had these higher order aberrations. And you could just see him think outside the box and bring in data and figure out what nobody else could figure out. And that has been the best thing that I've learned from him. Because, um, you know, as a di- uh, diagnostician, I think that uh, that has been such a valuable tool that he's given me.
1: Really, the gift of learning how to think. Uh, what, what better thing could we hope to pass on <laughs> you exactly. know, ourselves to others who work with us? Um, and sense. what better gift to receive from someone, especially someone like Roger, um, I want to I want to ask you. This is a little bit of a personal question, but what did it feel like to know that you were chosen by Roger Steinert? How in, how empowered did you feel at that moment, knowing that Roger Steinert could probably have his pick? Let's just be honest. Of okay. anyone, you know, to train, sure. to be sure. with, and he picked you. How did that make you feel in that moment?
2: I mean, just uh, amazing. Uh, you know, you feel so uh, blessed. And, uh, so this feeling of immense, you know, uh, awe that, you know, again, he could have had the pick of his fellows with amazing research backgrounds. And I certainly wasn't the, you know, the top in terms of publications. I didn't come in with all of that, but somehow he had seen my work and my work ethic, I think as a resident and felt that that was what he was looking for as a you know in his fellow somebody who's gonna work with his patients every day speak with his patients um operate on his patients and it's amazingly flattering so it was phenomenal right and um he really became over that year like a father to me yeah and i i hope and pray and he always would tell me how proud of me of me he was And uh, I I mean, that is something, because I grew up without a father, and he really filled that role in my work, but also just in general of of this person who's passing on to me his work, his way of thinking, his craft, and me carrying on that legacy.
1: Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, yeah. you know, I, I'm actually from a family of doctors. So my dad's a doctor, my mm-hmm. uncle's a doctor, my brother-in-law's a doctor. And, you know, lo and behold here, I've become a doctor. And, um, what you're saying, it, it actually reminds me just in this moment of all the conversations I would have around the dinner table with my own father when not really probably meaning to, but he kind of taught me how to think he's an, he's an internist, just retired, um, okay. And he loved. He was like Sherlock Holmes, you know. He loved those cases, those people exactly. who. Exactly. You know, he just loved those patients that had been to every other internist in town, or maybe had gone to the Mayo Clinic and come back, and no one could figure it out. He would. He just he relished the opportunity, and he he was great at explaining to me, you know, you, you know, just around the dinner table yeah. about all the different steps he took in looking at this problem, and that you know, and and really unraveling the layers to, to come up with a you know sort of the Occam's razor of, uh, you know, simple right. diagnosis. So it's that a very was interesting. That yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Fast forward a little bit. You, you're, you're, a, you've gone through residency. You, you hold this man obviously in high esteem. He was a lion. I mean, we, I, I unfortunately never had the um, distinct honor to meet Roger. That is one of my, great regrets yeah. in life is I didn't get to know him but I feel like I'm getting to know him posthumously through talking to people who loved him and everybody who knew him to know him was to love him and I'm, I'm learning um, so tell me there's got to be a couple of interesting stories funny stories um, tell me some stories what What was one of the most interesting things that you saw with Roger one of the some, you know give us give us something good <laughs>
2: There's, there's a lot of good things.
1: Oh boy. I'm kind of putting um, you on the spot. That's probably, that's probably not fair, but is there a particular case that comes to mind where, um, you were beating your head against the wall, trying to figure out something that was going on and, um, Roger saved the day.
2: I mean, there were so many of those, but sure. There was, there was one patient who, you know, that comes to mind who had had LASIK didn't really know what was going on, but had this, you know, had fairly good vision, 2025, 20, 2030, 20, but really unhappy. You know, it's the unhappy uh, 2020 or 2025 patients and just couldn't figure out, uh, no one could figure out what had happened in, the, in her LASIK. And again, this was one of those where ha- the patient had been to multiple uh, different doctors and nobody could really figure out, you know, the dry eye wasn't too bad because we always jumped to that. And this is just at the beginning, this is when I was a fellow, so it was over 10, 11 years ago, uh, when we were we're figuring out really higher order aberrations and their impact on the cornea. And, uh, you know, I I can't remember the the testing we did, it was some kind of, we did some topography testing, but I think we had some kind of higher order aberration, I think it was the old Alcon uh, where you could check the higher order aberrations on the wave uh, wave scan, I think it was. Okay. We found uh, this weird pattern that looked like this flap hadn't been fully put back, and the and the treatment had hit not only the bed but had also hit the flap, and the patient had this coma higher order aberration centrally through the vision, and this this was it. This was matched exactly. You know, he was showing her a pinpoint of light and having her explain exactly which way the light was scattering that was making her unhappy and sort of just coming to this finding out what nobody could figure out. And I remember that patient. I remember that case. And it was really like a aha moment that, you know, everything, no matter what everything can be normal there's something going on and it can be found so You have to listen to the patient and that was the thing because a lot of doctors had sent this patient away thinking you oh, know she's crazy but he listened to the patients and he and he believed them and he had them describe to the t uh exactly where the aberration was and based on that he would then figure out what happened and that was amazing uh, you know so you know, I remember that so, so in so much detail.
1: Yeah. And that's it. That's such an art, I feel like, and given the climate that we practice in where we're all being asked to do more with less um, time with patients, having that moment to actually listen um, and to form an opinion, you know, some patients are crazy. I mean, it's just, yeah, uh, that's the reality, but you know, I think, it's possible that we jump to that conclusion maybe a little hastily sometimes. And the other side of that coin is crazy people or people with peculiar personalities also sometimes have real problems. <laughs> so you can be both crazy and have a weird thing going on at the same time. And that's really hard to figure out. That's,
2: very, that's exactly right. <laughs> um,
1: and, and, and those are the pages that are really hard to untangle. So, Um, let's, let's just bring the story forward a little bit. So you, you finished your fellowship with Roger and you stayed on as faculty, is that correct?
2: Right. So towards, uh, the middle of my fellowship, he approached me and asked, you know, what, what were my plans? You know, and I tried to keep him updated. I was interviewing here and there, and I had really no plans of going academic, but he, um, basically he, he didn't push academics on me. He pushed specifically UCI. (laughs) You should join this practice. And here are the reasons why. And, you know, how could I refuse a job from Roger Steinert? I mean, this was, I would get to carry on uh, sort of training under him, if you will, and carry on working with this amazing mentor for, you know, indefinitely. So that was a no brainer to me. At that point, I really dropped everything and, uh, decided to join the faculty. And after that, after joining the faculty is when I realized that I, I do love academics and I'm really enjoying academics and enjoying the research and enjoying the cutting edge. And, uh, you know, with him as a boss and as a chairman of the department, the benefits and watching him, uh, interact with industry and move the department into this collaborate, collaboration with industry to spark more uh, innovation. You know, I watched all of this happen. We would turn around one day and say, yeah, we, we now have two Pentacams. This is back when Pentacam was in, in you know, donated because we're going to do this this and that research on this. And it was wonderful to see that, that we could really be the center for academic excellence and that industry would help us with that. And and he really was able to uh, make those bridges.
1: It's interesting. You know, it, it really kind of comes back to creating a culture and, you know, I've sort of heard the stories through, through, you know, the, the years of how he came out there and really just bootstrapped and built this program. Um, and was able to do it in a way that it seems is, is unique in an academic world. Um, what what do you what do you see as, as something that sets uh, UC a little bit or UC Irvine a little bit apart from other academic centers? Because a lot of times you hear from people who have gone into academics, you hear about the frustration. You hear about the right. frustration of I'm being managed by a big hospital system or a big academic system. We're a big, we're a small fish in a really big pond and people don't necessarily give us our due. And, you know, I can't, you know, at at various centers, I hear, you know, I have no control over my staff. You know, it's, it's just a lot of layers of bureaucracy. How is that different at your institution?
2: You're absolutely right. He came in and he changed the culture. It, it, that's exactly the words for it, because we went from, you know, and many academic institutes have this problem where there's this almost disconnect from the academic research and the research that's being done in industry. And there's this big disconnect and there aren't those bridges and there aren't those gaps and there isn't that communication. One of the reasons uh, Roger Steiner moved to Irvine was because it was one of the centers for uh uh, industry, ophthalmic industry in Orange County, and his um, uh, proximity uh, with our institute and all of these various industries and the ability to collaborate with them was really changed the culture and and allowed us to move forward in our research uh, and in our collaboration in general. And then he set the department. In such a high standing in the university's eyes that really at this point, the Department of Ophthalmology, even now, a year after his passing, is really their uh, star department, if you will. Both in terms of excellence, we were able to fundraise and build our own eye institute with 100% philanthropic uh, funds this was all done under his leadership and guidance. I mean, this is unprecedented. It was really an amazing feat to take this small, obscure department and really make it stand out in, in the world, a nation and the world, as a place of
1: excellence. I feel like there are so many lessons to be mined from what he did that could be applied to other departments looking to make a name for themselves. Um, that, that's probably a whole other podcast or book or whatever you want to call it. But, um, it is very interesting when you have the right leader at the top who can shape culture and is given enough, um, leash or, um, leeway to make the changes that are necessary. It really is amazing what can happen. And I think this is a really good case in point of, um, just having the right leader, um, to come in and, um, craft something, uh, that is, that is excellent. And, and honestly, something that, um, thankfully will outlive him. Um, he created something that was, that was, you know, extant, something that's going to continue living on. Right. Um, and, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How have you been able mm-hmm. to take over some of the things that he was doing, perhaps with research, perhaps with patients sure. and in, in many ways carry on his legacy?
2: Yeah. So in every aspect. So in my patient interactions daily, in my mentorship of my fellows now, it's, uh, you know, I try to emulate how he was with me and I try to give them that deeper understanding, a way to think, a way to approach every case that I hope. And, you know, and I give credit to Roger Steiner almost daily in the OR and in the clinic. And I'll tell my fellow this is how Roger Steiner did it. This, this is how we're going to learn how to do this particular case. Right. But um, so that's every day. And then in terms of my research, so, you know, the field, he, he was the first corneal surgeon who took corneal surgery and bridged it with refractive surgery. He's really the one who brought those two worlds together. And those, were, our... those
1: were really disparate worlds. Those were worlds exactly. that were way, way far apart. For younger residents or, or guys coming out, guys and gals coming out, um, you know, in some ways there is still a disconnect in, in many academic centers between the worlds of refractive surgery and true cornea care. But Correct. at the beginning, it was like um, almost like a war, a battlefront or something.
2: Right, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of uh, people who were very against, for example, femtosecond laser, corneal transplant, which, um, you know, hopefully I will con- I'm continuing to work in that area and try to push the uh, boundaries, but really uh, to bring it to the forefront of te- the technology, the forefront of corneal advancement, because we really haven't seen a push in in full thickness or deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty from what we knew. And we know femtosecond laser incisions are better. So um, uh, that's one of the works that I'm carrying on to refine that even more and to make it more accessible to corneal surgeons everywhere. Because one of the big issues was cost of laser. But Now that we have femtosecond laser technology potentially available in every cataract uh, suite, now we can bring that technology to a wider corneal world as well. So these are sort of advances that still need to uh, happen. And uh, hopefully I'm going to help with leading that way. So that legacy is something that I'm passionate about carrying on. Another project that we started shortly before he got ill was sort of his vision for designing an artificial cornea that could be really used worldwide. And there's some exciting collaborations and uh, people that he sort of got us connected with at UC Irvine who are working with material sciences in moving that forward as well. So there's some work being done that I'm continuing with, um, uh, Dr. Yi from UC Irvine Material Sciences and so on to see uh, working with different materials and, and trying to get a feasible artificial cornea designed.
1: And I know just from our conversation in the past, that there's there are some great ideas. Um, I don't know what they are because I've told you not to tell me, but uh, you've got some great ideas percolating. I know it. And th- these are probably all Skunk Works uh, you know mystery <laughs> projects that can't be talked about but um I'm sure there are so many more things that are happening uh behind the scenes at UC Irvine and uh, we can't wait to see uh what what the what the seeds that were planted with Roger Steinert um you know years ago uh we're we're going to see the fruits of those those uh labors um come to pass I, I would imagine for years and years to come
2: I think so I think so yeah.
1: Um, any final words about Roger? I know he meant so much to you, and it's hard. Yeah. Um, it's, it always feels inadequate when we um, talk about someone um, to, to really feel like we've, we've done them justice when they mean so much to us. But any final thoughts on Roger?
2: Well, I just uh, – there's lots of final words on him. But here was a man who was an amazing ophthalmologist but also an amazing person, humble and approachable and lovable at his level uh, where even, you know, anybody working around him at whatever layer of work they were doing, technicians, office staff, colleagues, residents, where he was equal in his love and respect for humanity and people who were um, doing service with him. And that's something you don't see every day and and made him really stand out as a human being and uh, one who sort of saw this future of ophthalmology and uh, this collaboration between all levels, between industry, academics, private practitioners uh, to advance our field. And um, a wonderful man, a wonderful father, a wonderful husband to his um, family who I feel I'm part of now as well and uh, love them all. So we just hope to carry on that legacy and uh, uh, you know, remember him continuously in what we do.
1: Well, I, uh, I know that uh, he is very proud of the work mm-hmm. you and everyone at UC Irvine are doing to carry on his legacy. I I don't mm-hmm. know that I've ever met or heard of someone who is so widely revered, loved, and respected. And um, I guess it's our job to learn the lessons from him and uh, carry on that legacy. So thanks, uh, Marjan. You're always welcome to come back as a guest and look forward to seeing you at an upcoming meeting sometime soon.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Gary.
0: We're lucky to have people in the field like Dr. Fareed and everyone at UC Irvine to carry on the legacy of someone who was as beloved and respected as Dr. Steinert. He stood out as someone who saw the future of ophthalmology. He was an outside-the-box thinker who showed others a different way to approach problems and how to really listen to a patient before forming an opinion. Dr. Steiner's influence helped turn a small ophthalmology department into a place of excellence. With the efforts of people like Marjan, his legacy will live on for years to come. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for listening.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.